then slammed against the Harding Air Transmission Tower, ripping a heavy electrical line from its brittle iron hook. It was 6.15 a.m. The 143-pound, 115-kilovolt braided aluminum wire, known as a juniper cable, fell through the air. A piece of the rusted hook fell with it. The energized line produced a huge bolt of electricity, reaching temperatures up to 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit and zapping the steel tower like lightning as it charred the pillar black. Droplets of molten metal sprayed into the dry grass. That's all it took. Where the hot metal droplets landed, fire ignited. The wind soaked the flames, which glittered in the darkness. For 10 minutes, or maybe 15, the fire feasted. Tiny flames licked along tiny stalks and burrowed into vegetation beaten back by herbicides. Wisps of white smoke filled the air, eddying in swirls and curlicues, as delicate as milk dissipating coffee before disappearing. The fire glowered. Near the fringes of the cleared land, dead timber was stacked several feet high. Manzanita, pine saplings, and grass bunched around the dead logs. The fire blasted toward the tangled and overgrown brush. The flames stretched higher, grasping for oxygen, then hunched and bent horizontally with the wind, pushing southwest. The heat broiled the flat volcanic benches ahead, where national forest land touched private logging fields. The fire didn't care about man-made divisions. It was ravenous. The smoke thickened, impossible to ignore. As the hot air rose, cooler air rushed in to take its place, pushing the flames up the slope. The canyon lay in the distance, a ready racetrack. There was nothing and nobody ahead to halt its advance. What you heard there was an excerpt from Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire by Lizzie Johnson, which is the focus of this episode today. So welcome to Across the Margin the Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to Osiris Media. Dot com and check out the vast array of podcasts they have to offer. They have the goods over there. That's OsirisPod.com. In this episode, I am thrilled to present an interview with Lizzie Johnson, a staff writer for the Washington Post. Previously, she worked at the San Francisco Chronicle, where she reported on 15 of the deadliest, largest, and most destructive blazes in modern California history and covered over 30 communities impacted by fires. Recently, she released the book, Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire, which is the definitive first-hand account of California's campfire, the nation's deadliest wildfire in a century. On November 8, 2018, the people of Paradise, California awoke to a gray sky and gusty winds. Soon, the campfire, the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history was upon them, consuming an acre a second. Less than two hours after the fire ignited, the town was engulfed in flames, the terrified residents trapped in their homes and cars. By the next morning, 85 people were dead. As a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, Lizzie Johnson was there as the town of Paradise burned. She saw the smoldering rubble of a historic covered bridge in the beloved Blackbeard Diner, and she stayed long afterward, visiting shelters, hotels, and makeshift camps. Drawing upon her years of on-the-ground reporting and reams of public records, including 911 calls and testimony from a grand jury investigation, Johnson provides a minute-by-minute account 
of the campfire, following residents and first responders as they fight to save themselves and their town. We see a young mother fleeing with her newborn, a school bus full of children in search of an escape route, and a group of paramedics, patients, and nurses trapped in a cul-de-sac, fending off the fire with rakes and hoses. In Paradise, Johnson documents this unfolding tragedy with empathy and nuance. But she also investigates the root causes from runaway climate change to a deeply flawed alert system to Pacific Gas and Electric's decade-long neglect of critical infrastructure. A cautionary tale for a new era of megafires, Paradise is the gripping story of a town wiped off the map and the determination of its people to rise again. In this episode... Lizzie and I explore how climate change has increased the intensity and size of wildfires throughout the world. We examine how economic factors have increasingly swelled the population in the wildland-urban interface. We look at the challenges of evacuating the entirety of a town. We scrutinize forest management, suppression, miscalculations while digging into the need for controlled burns. And we talk about the toll of reporting on tragedies such as this and much, much more, in my opinion, Paradise is a must-read. It's appropriately terrifying and eye-opening, and somehow entirely beautiful throughout. It's an extremely important book, and one I was honored to have the opportunity to talk about with the author, and so, I have no doubt, you will enjoy this conversation with Lizzie Johnson. Thank you again. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. This book is incredible. Your reporting here is um, it's shocking, enlightening, and um, I'm really, really thrilled to talk about it. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for reading and thanks for having me. Of course. So I'm really curious about um, your relationship with Paradise, the town in general. In your book, we are walked into so many um, you know, intimate lives uh, of all the residents and all the heroes. And you know, you're given a deeply personal tour of the town um I just it made me really wonder when did you first visit paradise and when did you you know get to know all the townspeople when did the relationship with paradise in general begin yeah so I guess taking a step back first um sure. you know I had been covering wildfires for a while before mm. the campfire hit paradise in 2018 and um you know just watching the way that the fire coverage was laid out, I felt like time after time, stories felt very one-dimensional where you would see people digging through the ash for wedding rings or coming back to see their homes destroyed and that was it. And you never really got a sense of place or the people who had built their lives there. So when the fire happened in 2018 in Paradise, that was already in the back of my mind, right? And then the place was so special that I wanted to understand what it had been and why people had decided to live there. Um, you know, I had never gotten to see Paradise before it burned out. And the first time I saw it was on November 8th, 2018, oh, the morning wow. of the campfire. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, in the year and a half that followed so much of my reporting centered on just being there, getting to know the people, getting to know the place and trying to, you know, take what I was seeing and work backwards in time. And, you know, like uh, the stars were so bright and being like, okay, I understand why people lived here. It's so beautiful. The air is so crisp and clean. And, you know, the pine trees I'm looking at now are burnt, but I can imagine they used to be really beautiful. And I just, it was really important to me to give people a sense of that place. And I knew that going into the fire. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you did a wonderful job there. And it's, you know, you see by the end of it, you mentioned the uh, acknowledgements, how people were literally, you know, open up your home to you throughout the process. And the connection was really deep and, and, and really beautiful. But um, you kind of mentioned it, how you've been covering wildfires for a little bit, but it just kind of you know, anyone who, who reads your book and anyone who knows about wildfires can attest to the fact that the breadth of knowledge required to talk about these is is pretty intense. I mean, from topography, geography, to a bevy of complex meteorologist, comp, you know, concepts, um, you know, the ignition triangle, live fuel moisture, um, and even also knowing um, the equipment of how electricity is moved. It's all It's all integral to really... Doing the whole thing. So um, it sounds like you've reported on it before, but uh, this is a lot to learn. Was there some on-the-job training or, or just some learning during the process? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I, when I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book about this, I was so overwhelmed because there was so much that I felt like I didn't know. And so I just wrote down all of these buckets of information where I'm like, okay, I need to learn about electrical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, in the beginning, I didn't know the difference between a transmission line and a distribution line and all of the engineering that goes into ferrying electricity across, you know, this huge state. Um, And then understanding wildfires, how they interact, understanding the town of paradise, understanding what had happened during the campfire. I think that, you know, to a lot of people, it happened so fast that it felt very abstract and there was no way of really understanding because all of the pieces of information felt so disparate. Um, so those were kind of my my guiding lighthouses while I was reporting the book, trying to figure out as much as I could about these things. And so um, I did what I could. I went through a professional firefighting academy with um, a county in Northern California. Oh, wow. And wow. that taught me a lot about firefighting. Uh-huh. It was really hard, but um, <laughs> learned by doing and seeing, you know, at one point they actually lit a field on fire and we had to go put it out. And uh, the chief was yelling at me, stay in the black, stay in the black. <laughs> Cause you know, black is like the area that is already burned and is the safe spot. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and then I had a colleague at the paper, J.D. Morris, who covered PG&E, and he answered every one of my stupid questions, was my pocket expert. And then, you know, asset. yeah, truly. And then just spending a lot of time in Butte County, driving around in people's cars, going on walks, going to the grocery store. I felt like um, I was always reporting, even when I was sitting down to eat dinner or, um, you know, buying bottled water at the gas mm-hmm. station to what people mm-hmm. were talking about. I um, I actually studied uh, forestry. I'm an arborist. Uh, is one of the things I do, and I um. Oh no way! One, one of the jobs I had, I actually worked for San Diego Gas and Electric in fire prevention. I would uh, walk the lines and and analyze the health of all the trees and look for any um, you know, a, a real concerns. And they, you know, I think you even alluded to it. They had a pretty good budget down there, and we did some really impressive work. It was early 2000s when I was doing this, but um. 
you know, I had to go through that training too with uh, with San Diego Gas and Electric, learning all the, you know, all the equipment. It's it's a lot, a lot to get your head around. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but it's that's why I was just so impressed the comprehensive uh, way in which you brought it all to life. And that's another thing I want to kind of go towards. It's it's truly wild how many you know factors um, go into kind of setting the table for a disaster such as this. And I know I, we'll get into a few of these specifically as it was kind of, you know, in a devastating way, a perfect storm, but um, and there's a lot to unpack there, but, you know, it's one thing that kept coming up um, was how, you know, economics was usually involved. And, you know, I was wondering if you could speak some on how so many people were propelled into towns like Paradise, into what is known as the wildland urban interface for economic reasons and how this puts them in harm's way. So many of the stories that you told spoke to that. Right. Yeah. You know, this is something that I, I cared a lot about in my reporting, just mm-hmm. going back and forth between paradise and San Francisco and hearing in the city people being like, Oh, well, why would people choose to live up there? If they knew that a fire was going to come, that just seems sort of stupid. And, uh, understanding that those people just didn't get that a lot of the people that lived in paradise and a lot of the people that live in places like paradise, whether it's a floodplain or a fire zone or um, a hurricane. So they live there because they can't afford to live anywhere else, right? They can't afford to buy a house in Sacramento or San Francisco or Los Angeles. And so places like Paradise are towns that cater to the everyman. They can have a life. They can walk their kids to the elementary school. They don't have to worry about paying rent. And so, you know, that's great, but it also comes with some risk, right? Because these are places that are very disaster prone. And um, a lot of these folks don't have the money or the physical ability to safeguard their houses against things like wildfires. Um you know, the state came out with fire standards a couple of years ago, and that basically just dictated how homes should be built to help them withstand a fire. But it didn't apply to any homes built before a certain year, right? So, you know, a lot of people couldn't retrofit their homes, and their homes are more likely to burn down. And it's just this self-perpetuating cycle, right, where people go to these places because they they can't build a life somewhere else, but then their lives are more at risk of being completely erased. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, how the town or somebody did. I'm I, I can't know. I'm not sure if it's exactly you. How the town is full of the newlywed and the nearly dead. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, and it just you know it's safer and more affordable to raise the children in the foothills. But um, you know, there's this cycle that that is very interesting to look at. You know, because there was a time where wildfires weren't as common in in these areas um i'm sure we'll get into more reasons about that why because we're going to talk about forest management in a minute but um you know people would move out there which would extend um you know the the uh, power lines out that way and mm-hmm. then, you know they needed to be there for people and that could lead to fire risk and, and then it conversely that cycles the other way too where power lines you know go, go certain places and that allows people to go as well so it's a weird you know cycle that puts people in harm's way. Also, you had that large um, population growth. Um, what was it from, uh, like, er, you know, the '60s to the early '80s, mm-hmm. where the, the whole town doubled, and it just, you know, it's it's, it's wild. So, 
you have this town that's that's you know it grew, grew in size and I always think about this when uh when um you know you're kind of hearing about or watching uh disasters unfold about uh evacuation and sometimes I get just so frustrated watching you know these lines of cars and I'm like this is th- how have they not planned this out you know this there's got to be a better way you see one side of the highway why aren't they using the other I just really get uh, you know frustrated but there is were so many challenges um to evacuating paradise and you know they, I think there's you know they're, they're very important to dissect and discuss um, when it comes to this tragedy. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the challenges in evacuating uh, the town on this day. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I know what you're talking about, too. I feel like um, it was really hard last month seeing people evacuate South Lake Tahoe during the Caldor right. fire. And again, it felt very eerily similar to what we saw in Paradise, where mm-hmm. um, gridlocked cars on one side of the road and then the other lane was completely open. Right. These were people that weren't moving at all. Like one guy got out and I think started playing a violin or some other stringed instrument like they weren't they weren't moving. And so we saw that in 2018, too. And it can be really infuriating to see that cycle repeat again and again. Um, You know, it is worth noting that Paradise was actually more prepared than a lot of communities were Mm. for fire. They understood the risk. They had actually practiced an evacuation drill before. They mailed these little postcards to every resident in town, inviting them to a fire forum to explain the risk and what they should do if a fire came. But they hit, the town officials hit against a lot of indifference because, you know, I think there's this sense that even if you know a disaster is likely, um, it doesn't mean you'll actually heat it, right? Mm-hmm. I always relate this to the fact that I lived in San Francisco for six years and only had an earthquake kit for probably the last year um, because it's it's hard to confront that reality and think about your life changing in such a, a violent way. And so when the campfire hit town, it, the evacuation was just sort of mayhem. Um, the plans that the town had made before fell apart, largely because they had planned based on past wildfires, which moved in a much slower way. And they had never planned for a wildfire hitting the entire town at once and what they would need to do if every single person needed to leave their home at the exact same moment. And so you had, you know, 26,500 people trying to get down the hill on a limited number of evacuation routes. No one wanted to leave their vehicles behind. So they were, they were bringing out travel trailers and boats and RVs and, you know, all three cars for a household, um, I remember so strikingly when I went up there afterwards, there were just these husks of cars and other vehicles all over the place because it was so gridlocked that cars started burning with people inside of them. Um, And so some of those people didn't make it out. Other people had to get out of their cars and start running. And it just really showed the importance of having an evacuation plan and being prepared. And I think you know, the campfire was the worst case example. And in some ways we learned from it and in other ways we didn't because we're still seeing these issues today. You mentioned how it being in the morning, you know, complicated things. That was something you just mentioned it and that I never thought about it um, just because I haven't had to, that everyone, you know, from a, from a home was taking their own car because, you know, their mentality was they're going to try to save that and get that out too. And, you know, that, 
exacerbates things, but you point out so well that no place anywhere is designed for to get everyone out all at once. Um, also, the, the concerns with the uh, Skyway, it was wild, you know, go, you going into the history of it and when they actually were reducing lanes and everything, it was, it was very, uh, it was, you know, knowing what was going to happen was pretty intense reading those parts. Mm-hmm. Wow. And one, one town official who worked there for a long time and then retired, mm-hmm. he said something to me that really um, put it into perspective, which was that, okay, do you, do you plan a town for constituents to enjoy day after day, knowing mm-hmm. you have a limited amount of money, or do you plan for the 100-year event? That'll happen once in a hundred years, right? Those were the yeah. the decisions that local officials had to make, uh, making sure people in town were happy, but also keeping them safe. And when you only have so much money and it's a poor community, right? You can't have everything. Yeah. Wow. I I really haven't even thought about that again because I really haven't had to. That's 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 intense. Um, well, that's some that brings up something I thought about a whole lot, um, and that's just kind of how know these lives of of people in all these towns um you know they're kind of under uh, you know fire is ever present around them and and you know we met so many people who generations of firefighters um you know in their family even um you know i was thinking that when we met um the wildfire wildfire ready raccoon Mm -hmm. you know and just all these councils these meetings and you know the these towns are literally just it is, it is built into them that this could happen. And that has to be a pretty heavy, um, you know, uh, it's weight on, on your shoulders all the time. But also I, I could feel there's a lot of pride in these jobs and, and, and keeping the town secure. So it's just I kept thinking about that, how fire was ever present in, in all these people's lives all the time. Right. But again, I think that, you know, for a lot of people, there was that cognitive dissonance where, they knew that fire was ever present and it was a risk and every summer they were a little nervous, but it was nothing like after the campfire. I think now people are really, really feeling it where every time this the air gets smoky and the eye air sorry, every time the air gets smoky and the sky turns sort of orange, they yeah. worry that their house is gonna burn down again. That's that's really just that's 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 emotionally pretty intense. Um you mentioned at one point amnesia was part of California's identity. I guess that would get, you know, it was interesting too, was the, um, when we were talking about how, you know, uh, certain people won't leave and it has to kind of happen to them to really feel it and, and want to act. But the lake um, will be gone. Mm-hmm. I probably the, the, that effect. And it's, it's just all about overestimating your chances of survival, which makes a lot of sense. You see that in, you know, the, the flooding and, and all these, in so many instances, which is wild. But um, I don't want to go too much further without mentioning climate change um it's 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 got a major role here and it can't be ignored and um i was wondering if you could tell us how in this particular instance in the campfire climate change affected the size and intensity of the fire right so you know it's a big messy ball of causes that created this fire right obviously there's issues with forest management, there's a vulnerable electrical grid, there's this community that was built in a fire-prone area and the houses weren't fireproofed. Mm -hmm. And so for a very long time, it was okay because, you know, the weather was more stable. But 
climatologists talk about climate change as a threat multiplier. So you have all of those things and all of a sudden the danger gets a lot greater because, you know, the rain doesn't come when it should. Things are a lot drier. Vegetation starts to die. And so that creates all of the conditions for a mega fire. And that's what we saw on the morning of November 8th. I mean, just to put it in perspective, that's like a a week and a half or so before Thanksgiving, right? There was a time in California where it was unimaginable to have a fire in November or even in December, which is what we saw in 2017 down in Ventura with the Thomas fire that burned through Christmas. So um, the rain just hadn't arrived in Butte County. It was late and, um, you know, when... When the spark ignited from that transmission tower, the winds picked it up and carried it straight into town. There was no way of fighting it. One firefighter told me that, you know, you can fight fire, but you can't fight weather. And the wind was just blowing too hard and there was too much to burn. And it just completely destroyed the town of Paradise within a couple of hours. Wild. I mean, yeah, as, as the dr- you know, there was the droughts leading up to it where, you know, you had 150 million dead trees, all that fuel, mm-hmm. um, you know, rainfalls become so erratic. And at this point, it was so late in the season that you opened up to that. You, you could tell um, uh, uh, one of the fire chiefs kind of thought they might have been out of the woods at that point in time of year, but not. And also the changing of um, the rhythm of lightning that you mentioned, which is mm-hmm. you know, increased strikes and all that. It's just, it's, it's wild. So, um Another uh, uh, big factor um, is uh, kind of how uh, the forest is managed. And it's kind of out my politics I talk about on the show. But, you know, it's not often you agree with something um, uh, Donald Trump's saying, but you even mentioned in your book how he had a point at one point when he was talking about, you know, all the fuel. And, um, you know, I was wondering how, if you could discuss a little bit about how centuries worth of colonial fire suppression um, could lead to this and, you know, kind of, you know, it moved towards the, the, the need for and importance of um, low-intensity controlled burns. Right. Yeah, you know, I think Trump really bungled his delivery, but he, <laughs> he did have a point. Um, he wasn't wrong there, yeah. He wasn't totally wrong. Um, yeah. So, you know, when white settlers came over from Europe, they brought with them this attitude that fire was evil, right? And... That's just not true. California has always burned. It has, it has the climate that's conducive to it. Um, it marks the changing of the seasons the way that, you know, the Midwest gets snowstorms or there's a rainy season elsewhere. And it's how the forest stays healthy. And so indigenous populations used fire as a tool. They knew that it would increase their yield of food, acorns and things like that, and also keep the, the landscape healthier for the wildlife, like deer and things of that nature. And so, you know, when these settlers came over and killed off a lot of the indigenous groups and that native knowledge, they also stomped out fire on the landscape. And again, for a long time, it seemed like it was fine and it worked because there really weren't any fires. But the problem was just compounding because year after year, there were more and more trees and more and more brush. Um, One woman told me that you know, the sign of a healthy forest is if you could ride a horse through it with your arms outstretched and not hit a single tree trunk. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've been out in the Sierra Nevada lately, but that's just impossible. I was out backpacking there this summer and I felt like I could barely walk through with my backpack without snagging on a branch somewhere. So, um, you know, 
again, the compounding of all of these problems, we're living with the legacy of bad decisions in a lot of ways. And so now we have this really overgrown forest that hasn't been managed properly. We have homes that are deep in the wild and urban interface. And so, you know, those people don't want preventative burning as much because they don't want to see smoke in the sky in January and they're worried about their homes. So it gets harder to do that kind of preventative work that we now know needs to be done. And then we have a very vulnerable electrical grid that is deep in the forest, which is diseased and dying. So it's all of these things at once, right? But that's a really big piece of it is that Mm -hmm. our landscape is just kind of a tinderbox right now. Uh, you mentioned how 20 million acres in California could really use that. And, you know, there's a great article just in NPR about how um, um, 70% of the controlled burning is actually done in the southeast right now. And California is looking to places, mm-hmm. surprisingly, like Florida, to learn more about, you know, the need there. I actually, you know, I think about it and talk about it a lot. It's because you, you just alluded to it. A lot of people don't like the, the smoke from these fires. And there's a lot of c- complaints when you do it. I've actually, just like you have done been a part of some prescribed burns. Um, And I just believe there should be more outreach and education about it and that it's important. We need to get the word out. Um, Actually, I'm working on this tree project in Texas, and I've gotten to know the the guy who runs um, the Botanical Research Institute of Texas, Britt. His name's Patrick, great guy. But they actually do a controlled burn right outside their facility, right near the Botanical Garden uh, outside Fort Worth, each year mm-hmm. and they invite the whole town down to kind of see how they do it and just you know they're really trying to get the word out and they, and they let everyone know why and everything like that i'd love to see more of that it's so critical um and you know it just it it's it just needs to be employed so much more it's critical yeah but it's a tough sell though and i think is. i think it people is. would understand better if they realized that that kind of thing might might be the the thing that saves their home right absolutely but again, it can be hard in, in January or February where you feel safe to be like, okay, we need to do this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, smoke and fire is always scary. You're absolutely right. A tough as hell it can be. Um, you know, climate change and drought and, um, you know, some, a lot of these factors we spoke on didn't cause the fire. Um, that was, you know, a, a failing by PG&E. I was curious how you thought or the town feels, and it's inferred in your book, of course, but about their response to the fire and even, you know, what they're doing now. I'm just just curious your thoughts there. I mean, this is, you know, it was labeled as a catastrophic uh, negligence, as the CPUC. This was a big deal, and, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously a lot of lives were lost because of their negligence. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of anger, Um mm-hmm particularly because it all boiled down to one piece on this tower failing, which was a hook that could have been replaced for, I think, like $19 hook alone, um, plus, of course, the added cost for like sending someone up there to do it. But So when people hear that, they're like, wow, my entire community, everything that I know, my church, my home, my neighbor's home, my mom's home, my sister-in-law's home all burned down because of this. Like, that's very hard to wrap your head around, particularly because um, it's hard to punish a corporation, right? You hear about that fine 3.5 million and it just seems like so little compared to everything that was lost. And you want someone to be held accountable. The people of Paradise want PG&E to be held accountable, but you can't really send 
people to jail or state prison for that because these were decisions that were made in the 80s and the 90s. And so, you know, there are some people that really just like hate PG&E and blame the corporation and will just spend all of their time talking about how it's all PG&E's fault. And then there are other folks that realize that, you know, PG&E caused the fire and they are to blame. But also just the way conditions were, if it wasn't PG&E, you know, the next summer it might have been lightning or the summer after that it might have been, you know, a random accident like a trailer scraping the ground or, you know, one of the biggest fires in state history was caused by a guy trying to plug a b-hole in the ground. It's just wow. our, our conditions are so bad that it would have taken any kind of spark. That day it was PG&E and again, they are at fault, but in the future it really could have been anything. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Um, yeah, it just, it's, how is paradise uh, right now? I mean, the idea to rebuild or not to rebuild just, you know, kind of kept crossing my mind. I know that was, you know, touched on towards the end. And, you know, at one point, I think recently the town was reclassified as a rural area. And I totally understand with all this, um, you know, uh, the, the emotional and physical and all the loss and just the toll of the whole thing, why people would want to move out. Um, do you know the status of it at this moment, the, the town? Yeah, you know, because of the pandemic, I haven't been back recently. Yeah, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a really tough decision whether to rebuild or not. Again, some of it is dictated by finances. Some people don't have the option to go somewhere else. So they're Absolutely. still in town or living in FEMA trailers and other people, it it's like paradise is all that they knew. And, you know, they have generations of mountain blood in their veins. Their grandparents live there. Their great-grandparents live there. And it's hard to tell those people that they can't rebuild because their entire life was this town. There were some folks that I talked to who had never seen the Pacific Ocean. And what, that's only a few hours to the west. That's how big paradise was to them. And then, of course, there are other people that realize that they can't just keep living in this trauma, that it's too hard. I've noticed even in the past year, there are people who were very steadfast about staying in paradise have moved because the past two summers of fires have put them on edge so much that they're like, I can't I can't keep living in this summer after summer. I didn't realize it would keep getting so bad. And so they moved to Chico or to Durham or other surrounding communities yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I completely get it as much as the town means something to you. And, you know, someone mentioned paradise is not several thousand acres of charcoal. It's about the people. But then, you know, it just, you think about the trauma. And I guess they, they were referring to PTSD as fire brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, it, it's, it's really a gripping, you know, you, you make it so personal. And just, I can't, I couldn't stop thinking about what Travis is going through now. And, Beth, uh, who's a dispatcher, those calls and, you know, it's, it's just so intense what they must be still dealing with. And, 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 you know, to kind of ask you a little bit of a personal question, this it's, it must've been really tough, you know, doing all this intense reporting on it and and digging. It's not easy to do this type of reporting on the, on these tragedies. So that was pretty challenging, huh? Yeah. You know, it's, I don't talk about it very much. I'm I'm getting better about talking about yeah, it. I bet. I bet. Um just because, you know, these people went through so much and it is a gift to hear their stories and to believe in the power of the book, but yeah, it's really hard. Um 
you know, even when the book came out last month, I had a very hard time being excited about it because I just kept yeah. thinking like, oh, I would, I would trade it all back just to put the town back together and bring all of the people who died back to life. Like yeah. it felt really weird celebrating a book about such a tragedy. Um, and again, you want to believe that bad things don't happen to good people, but they do all the time. And just seeing how the suffering continues is really, really hard. You want to believe that at some point things will get better. And I think the reality is sometimes it doesn't. Uh, For some people, the fire lives on in in their minds forever and they will never be the person that they were before. Well, that's, um, you know, that's why your book is so important on, on many levels, of course. But I mean, you point out so many concerns in such a comprehensive way um, you know, things that, that need to be looked at and hopefully change. I mean, the communication breakdown was crazy. I guess 82% of Paradise residents never even reser- re- received an emergency alert. And just it, it's so many levels, communication was messed up. But, I mean, there has to be, you know, a lot of learning here and a lot, a lot of takeaways for a lot of people. So I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, is there – do you see that as um, – do you see any changes um, that are that are heartening as you, as you know you think about this problem that either PG and E might be stepping up and finally taking care of, or people, um, local people, more importantly, are are taken to kind of you know fix some of these concerns? Yeah, I mean, PG and E announced recently that they were planning to underground thousands of miles of power lines in Northern California. So that's a start. That's something that'll take time, obviously, but is a step in the right direction. Um, the state has realized that preventative work is really important. And so there's been more of a push to do preventative burning and thinning during the off season. Um, in Paradise, they passed new rules on how homes should be built after the fire. Things like, it's simple, like detaching your wooden fence from your home so that if the fence catches on fire, it doesn't mm-hmm. lead right up to your house. That's encouraging. And then I think there's been a big conversation in this in the state legislature about how we do alerting during natural disasters and how we evacuate people. And so I think, you know, one of the biggest things, even before we get to finding solutions, is to make sure that we're on the same page and having the same conversation. And I think Mm -hmm. for the first time in a very long time, people are realizing that this is really, really important and we can't just wait until the fire comes to figure it out. Well, you mentioned that your book is a product of coming to love a community you're embedded in and it shows in such a dramatic way you're, I mean, you could, your heart was in there your connections to these people were in there it was really beautiful it was astounding to me how you pieced together the timeline of the events in that day it was truly remarkable and all in all uh this book really seems to me to be an ode to everyone involved and it's it's unflinching um and so it's intense at times but it's also super beautiful so Thank you very much, Lizzie, for um, coming on the program here and talking about it. It's it's, it's an important book, and it's super excellent. Thank you for having me. Well, I had me a garden, and everything I grew there Kept me thinking I'm okay, here in my easy chair Finally had me some roses that weren't eaten by deer. It was a good life, but now I cry me a tear. Cause I'm a refugee 
This podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.